on last week. And I noted to you that I'm not, I am still not actually into the declared subject uh, for our studies, which is the Baptist distinctives. I am not yet actually into uh, looking at any of those, but rather I am taking the time to lay for you groundwork as to the importance and purpose and function and seriousness, if you please, of our subject, the seriousness of our, the importance of our taking up this subject at all. And uh, it is of vast importance, and I have been using the words of these lecturers, these other men who have lectured on this matter of the value of uh, of our Baptist distinctives, men of, of bygone days who have lectured on that, and those lectures are found in the back of the book, Baptist Principles Reset, in its, uh, it was originally articles done by Jeremiah Bell Jeter, but then later the book was uh, revised and added, there were other lectures added to it. And I'm drawing this material, this preliminary material, from those lectures that are in the back of that book. And uh, today I want to take that subject back up again by looking at uh, those things set before us by Dr. A.E. Dickinson in his treatment called what Baptist principles are worth to the world. And that you'll find that beginning if you have this reproduced copy of the book. You'll find that on page 257. Now, uh, A.E. Dickinson, just about a brief bio, uh, that's Alfred Elijah Dickinson. Uh, he was born in Orange County, Virginia. He fought in the Army of Northern Virginia, and then later in life, along with Jeter, he was in partnership with Jeter in purchasing the what was called the Religious Herald. And he, of course, contributed articles and was co-owner with Jeter of that uh, that's very significant uh, publication the Religious Herald. He was a pastor and an editor. And he delivered this message from Harold Richmond, Virginia, uh, Dr. Jeter, born in uh, 1830, died in 1906. Uh, Dr. Uh, sorry, Dr. Dickens. <clears throat> and uh, he takes up the subject of uh, the value of Baptist distinctives to the world. And first off, I would point you to the fact that he uh, makes 
makes, a, and I think it's important for us to, to make the point that this is not merely some sectarian pursuit. We're not just trying to be different, uh, to be different, uh, just for the purposes of being sectarian. He says, I shall not put forth in his treatment of this subject. He promises that he will not put forth unwarranted and exaggerated claims for the Baptist, nor underestimate what other Christian people have done. In speaking of what Baptists have done and of what their principles are worth, I hope not to use a word to which any of God's dear children, not of this fold, can rightly take exception. He is not looking to be divisive intentionally or just sectarian. And he wants that to be made very clear. But then when he starts to take up the subject of Baptist principles, their worth to the world, he makes the point that our effect, that is Baptists, <clears throat> on the world, <clears throat> to quote him, has not been a tithe of what it could and should have been. He says, uh, to give you the quote, he says, in the very beginning, I must frankly confess that Baptists have accomplished for the human family scarcely a tithe of what they might have and ought to have done. He says, uh, we are summoned to the profoundest humiliation in reviewing the failures and follies which have almost everywhere and always marred the force and beauty of our principles. Now that's a, that's a horrible statement. A horrible statement. But there it is. He said many a time have these blunders brought us into disrepute among great masses of good people. You know that the worst enemies to any good cause are those who profess to be its champions. And yet, in their teaching and living, they misrepresent its spirit and its aims. So, in taking up the subject of what Baptist principles are worth to the world, he first off acknowledges they have not been what they should have been. We ourselves, by our follies and fumbles and mistakes, we've brought discredit to the things that should have held credit among great masses of people. And then he takes up this failure, this failure to affect the world, and he says that it comes from the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ departing from us because sin in all of its forms 
and worldliness take us over. He said, whenever the Spirit of Christ departs from a Baptist church, whether such a church turns from its God-given mission, wherever it turns from its God-given mission, it dies. It dies surely, it dies completely, and it often dies speedily. The bones of such a church soon become as exceeding dry as were those of which Ezekiel had a vision in the open valley. No amount of excited breath <laughs> expended in Baptist brag and brazen boastings. No fierce indictments of other Christian denominations. No iron bands of organization. Nothing can keep alive a Baptist church which turns its eyes from its high and holy mission and fixes them on low and groveling aims and purposes. Such a church soon wastes away and gives up the ghost, and the sooner it does, the better. <laughs> There's a lot of Baptist churches should have shut their doors years ago. Far better for them. No amount of excited breath expended in Baptist brag and boasting. But then he also says, no amount of iron bands of organization. I couldn't help but think of the SBC. That is the largest, by the way, Baptist denomination in the world, the Southern Baptist Convention, SBC. And I can assure you they have perfected the science of organization. And, uh, but this dear brother somewhere around 1900 said, no amount of organization will save your church when the spirit of Christ departs from it. <clears throat> I couldn't help, I know it's, it's almost a glaring contrast between anything said by Lester Roloff and something said by Dr. Dickinson. But I couldn't help but remember in that sermon when Lester Roloff in 1970-71 said to that assembly of young ministerial students, he said, when Christ writes Ichabod over your church, it'll take a lot of hot dog suppers for you to build it. Of course, he was making fun of hot dog suppers as much as he was declaring the truth. <clears throat> so the effect has been sparse. It has been weak. We have failed as Baptists historically. We've made a mockery of the truth many times because of our own worldliness. <clears throat> but then he goes on to impress on the fact that this study, this study of Baptist distinctives is again, not, he is again wanting to make the point that it is not intended to foster divisiveness, divisiveness. He says there is nothing such Baptists like so well as hot water. And the hotter, the better for them. If necessary to make things lively, they will invent new tests of Baptist orthodoxy. 
of which our Baptist fathers never so much as dream. Anything is to their liking if it serves to foster and foment dissensions and distract and destroy feeble churches, which but for some unworthy leadership might soon become great and glorious exponents of the true Baptist faith. So he, he has a word of rebuke to our hearts about our seeming divisiveness. <laughs> he says that it historically, at least in his day, he could say Baptists seem to have uh, a great fondness for divisiveness. If nothing else, they'll create new points of difference whereby we can judge one another. And we've certainly seen that in Baptist history. So he makes the point that this, this study, the Baptist study of Baptist distinctives has no, as a study of truth, has no design at setting up new standards or creating divisiveness among God's people. And then he makes a point, which I have said much of over the years since my, in the context of my own experience, that we have carried independency too far. Now as Baptists, and we'll get into that down the road, we believe in the independence of every local church. And we do believe in that. That is a Baptist distinction. And we will see it and we will defend it. But as with any good thing, it may be carried too far. And we have carried this idea of independency too far in times. He says, if others have had too much machinery, often we have had too little. Their cast iron polity, their wheels within wheels, should not have deterred us from having all the wheels we really need that are in keeping with the necessities laid upon us for doing our work and in line with scripture teaching. Exalting our New Testament doctrine of church independence, putting the supreme power and authority in the local church where they belong, it is not necessary that we let our great resources run to waste. That doctrine does not hinder, but rather calls for such combination and concentration of these little Christian republics as may be for the good of each and all. Now, I love that expression. I put quotes around it. He did not. Little Christian republics. <laughs> he said uh, this doctrine of Baptist, of church independence, ought not hinder us from combinations and concentration of efforts between these little Christian republics as may be necessary and helpful 
mutually helpful for us to achieve our goals. I thought I'd throw that open for discussion there because that's a great big gray area. And it would be difficult, I think, it would be difficult to even get far from getting two Baptist churches to completely agree. It would be hard to get everyone in one Baptist church to agree altogether on how that works out, how to flesh that out. What do we do? How do we combine our labors? And one of the things my wife and I have discussed many times over the years, and we continue to see it, is how much churches like, for example, Presbyterians, how much they can get done, how much they can accomplish building colleges, building massive mission organizations, etc., etc., because of the structure of their church. Of course, they don't hold to independence. They don't hold to the independence of each congregation. So, but their structure, their structure of church order is such as facilitates them being able to do these things. Where our little Christian republics tend to not be willing to cooperate in a very real and tangible way. So, what say you? Level of cooperation 
regionally, nationally, etc. And putting the structure in place. Go what you can. Go take care of that. Set up a structure. Do yeah. That. Yeah. And uh, what we learn from that is very questionable. If we talk to all the Well, it's a fragile topic, I can tell you that. We had men, when we were participating in the uh, Reform Song Grace group that we were in, it was called legally and specifically an, uh, a fellowship. And there were men in it who were just, I mean, as faithful, active, totally committed to involvement with it who would have drawn back and cut themselves off from it had it taken the name association. They did not want to be cooperate with anything called an association. Even though an association has no governing power, it is itself still just an association. But uh, there was that level of sense of independency among them that they didn't even want the name association. And uh, that that is what that is what uh, Dickinson would call uh, taking uh, taking it too far, taking our independency too far. There's always details to be hammered out. When any church looks at the possibility of affiliating themselves with something among other Baptists, there's always the details to be hammered out of that. And, uh, and it's not, it's never fun work. <laughs> it's never pleasant to hammer out those details. So one response can be just simply to throw it off and say we're just not even going to fool with that. We're not, no, we're, just forget it. We don't have time to talk about it. Or we can put in the work to hammer out the details and figure out ways to, to work together. I have, all, I have held for my stand and do currently hold from my standard the bare, basic, and nothing more than the essential of the gospel. I cannot bring myself to cooperate in any way with anyone who has, in my opinion, a different gospel from my own, from what I believe Scripture teaches. However, if they meet that criteria and that alone, I am reluctant to press for any further uh, similarity 
That is with regard to undertaking some, some function, some work, some task to be done. And thus we support folks. We have funded and sent money and funded folks who are distributing the scriptures of whom we would not doctrinally agree, but it was for the purpose of distributing the scriptures that we can, we can with confidence and comfort participate in that. And, uh, that's where I have always <clears throat> drawn the line because we go, to, I think, to go much further than that in demanding parallelism is to go a bit too far and you'll never accomplish anything. You'll never do anything with anybody. Hey, let's face it, fellas, gentlemen. There's times I can't even get full agreement in my own house. <laughs> right? Isn't that true? There can be some diversity of opinions is all I'm saying. And uh, so in the church of the living God, if we wait for complete and 100% unanimity on every detail of things, we're going to really cramp ourselves as to what we're doing for the Lord. <clears throat> we're going to have to at least come to a conclusion as to some minimals and, and work with those minimals. So it's just an interesting discussion, uh, and I'm not trying to solve it here. I'm only saying this is, this is one of the points that Dickinson makes, that we as Baptists, we have pressed this matter of independency too far, in his opinion. Another point he makes uh, is that we as Baptists have failed. Now, what he's dealing with here, this whole subject, is the worthiness of Baptist distinctives to the world. And he makes the point that one of our failures is that we have ignored the wealthier classes. We've ignored the wealthier classes. He says... We have not too often satisfied ourselves with evangelizing the neglected masses while overlooking others whose wealth, learning, and position we might have brought into active cooperation with us in the defense and diffusion of our denominational views. Because of these and many more Baptist blunders, which with becoming humility let us now confess and deplore, Baptist principles have not had a fair opportunity in the world. Baptist principles, he says, uh, we have not reached sought to reach the wealthier classes. Now, there's a, there's, a, there's a line here that we have to walk. We don't want to appeal to the wealthier classes because of their money. We don't want to bring them into our Baptist ranks so that we can pilfer their wealth, their wealth. But far too often, we have satisfied ourselves with only reaching the lower 
segments of our society. Well, a lawyer with a law firm in downtown, a doctor with a practice and a building in downtown, a circuit court judge, these are sinners. These are sinners the same as the men down there at jail tonight. These are sinners. And we have often neglected them because of their wealth. We've been reluctant to present them with the gospel. And uh, it has been to our shame that we have seemed to have had an affinity for the lower classes. <laughs> which of course are not to be neglected, but then neither are the upper classes to be neglected. Uh, I, I think that we, I think we miss that sometimes, do we not? You see a man in a fine three-piece suit, Armani shoes, and he's driving a, you know, Ferrari, we're somewhat reluctant to speak with that man about his soul. It ought not to be. It ought not to be. We have ignored, says Dickinson, the wealthier classes. The chief, if not the only reason, why Baptist principles have not long ago gained a thousandfold stronger hold upon Christendom is to be found in all of our Baptist blunders. Not pedo-Baptist logic. Listen to him now. Not pedo-Baptist logic, but Baptist living has kept us in the background. In other words, they didn't win the field. They didn't win the field in their, in their logic. They won the field because we as Baptists have made too many blunders, stumbling all over ourselves. Then he takes up a defense of our denominational, quote, reason for existence. And by the way, there's a huge thing today, I mean, bigger than I've ever seen in my lifetime, to do away completely with any denominational identity. Right? I have, a, in one of the things I keep a file on my phone, is I, 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 I <laughs> and I've entertained myself with it, is, is I keep a listing of the names of churches around Calhoun County that I see. Go Church. Change Church. We got one out here on 29 named No Nonsense Church. No Nonsense Church. And I mean, just some of the most bizarre names. And you drive by and you say, what are they? What are they? Well, that's the point. They don't want to be identified with anyone. So if we are going to say we are Baptist and we have Baptist distinctives 
and we want to hold those Baptists distinctive, then there needs to be a reasonable defense for our, that is what he calls a reason for existence and definitions for that. He says, what are Baptist principles? Baptists hold, Baptists hold to certain views and practices which are distinctive and peculiar and are held by no others on earth. They regard these as immensely important, worth living for, and worth dying for. And hence, when it is proposed in the name of Christian union to merge all denominations into one general organization, it seems to us but idle talk. Such a union may suit those who have nothing in particular to stand for. But it does not commend itself to us who have great doctrines which can be maintained only by our continued separate existence. Starting out with the principle that the New Testament is our ultimate and only authority as to church order and church action, the question of church organizations is settled for us for all time. The inspired epistles emphasize the importance of holding firmly to gospel order, leaving nothing to the caprice and ever-changing whims of poor fickle morals. The inspiration, the inspired volume does not contain a line which indicates that anything will do for baptism. That if you think a thing is right, it is right to you. You search the book of God in vain to find that baptism means this, that, or the other thing, or nothing. Just as one may choose to have it. You will find no line there which so much as remotely intimates that this ordinance is of any, is for any but penitent belief. Nor will you find anything there which could give the faintest idea that the supper was ever to come before the baptism. The India rubber system of our pedo-baptist brethren has millions of advocates in this world, but no whisper is heard in its behalf in the book of God. Now that was a bold Baptist statement he just made. <laughs> The Indian rubber stamp system of our Pado baptist brethren has millions of advocates in this world, but no whisper is heard uh, in its behalf in the book of God. So, he is conferring this fact, and then he Again, touching this matter of unity. He says unity is desirable. Unity of form as well as unity of spirit. And hence every denomination of Christians is perpetually challenged for the reason of its existence. If it has no distinctive principles, it has no right to live, nor does it deserve to live. 
if its principles are comparatively valueless. So then, we have this whole matter, and I'll stop there, but we have this whole matter of our reason for existence. Is it tradition? We don't want our traditions to go away. Is it inherited pragmatics? What is our reason for existing separately as Baptists? Well, the fact is, the reality is, we hold certain principles, which, in his words, we could not hold. Here, here's his words, great doctrines which can be maintained only by our continued separate existence. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. No other way to put it. We have a defense of our existence. Our defense is that we hold some doctrines. And that's what we will eventually someday get to. We hold some doctrines that we cannot maintain in conjunction with others who do not hold them. We must have our own independent standing as Baptists. And those distinctives, in his words, are worth living for and worth dying for, as we shall see. All right? Any further discussion from today's lecture? Sure. Always have time for Gil. Yeah, be sure you can be heard. Yes. For the introducing of new words and phrases is often means of bringing in new doctrines and of raising great contentious contentions and animosities. Wherefore, using the same words to express truth by is a very proper and prudent expedient to prevent that. 
And the apostle said that there be no divisions or schisms among them, which are generally made by innovation in doctrine, mm -hmm. in worship, or worship, by forming new schemes of religion, new articles of faith, and modes of discipline. And then he said that it be perfectly joined together and in the same mind and in the same judgment, which Dr. Gill says regards not only the sameness of love and affection to one another, being as the first Christians were, of one heart and one soul, but their agreement in their judgments and sentiments of both doctrine and discipline, and such an entire harmony and symmetry among them as in the members of, body, of the body, where each member of bone being in their proper place exactly answer to and tally with each other, which is the most effectual way to speak the same things, and so far against all schisms and divisions. And such an agreement is absolutely necessary for the peace, comfort, and well-being of a church, or how should two, and much less more, walk together unless they are agreed. I was struck in the last lecture with this consideration that the study of doctrine, particularly Baptist doctrine, it is not an option. Mm -hmm. Just as we've said before, learning from Christians is not an option. That's right. It is imperative by apostolic commission that we strive together not only to have the same doctrines, but to express them in the same words. Yes. To have that kind of unity. Yes. And that's what we ought to do. The requirement. And what was the text he was commenting on? First Corinthians one ten, Dr. Gill's commentary for those that might not be able to hear it on the recording. That's what Luke was reading from. And I I uh one of my great burdens is that this church may have other churches with which to identify. We have made attempts at that to no success so far. We have made attempts to that. It is not because we do not want it. We do want it. But we must be in agreement. And to me, for, for example, my criteria to invite another man to come to this pulpit, we need to be in agreement specifically and certainly on the matter of the gospel. But then, further than that, we need agreement in confession as Luke has expressed, that our confession of faith and the very wording of it, that we be in agreement on that. Well, you say, well then, where's all the brothers that hold that? There are lots of churches out that hold. They don't. That's the point. They say they do. They give lip service to it. And in their on their websites and in their writings, they claim it. But then when you go to them and you start to talk to them and you address specific matters that are in that confession, they back off. They're backpedaling. They don't hold it. So we don't have unanimity. We don't have unity at all. We don't hold the same things. Notwithstanding, they give lip service to a confession. But I think that's a good point Gil has made, that we express ourselves not only in the same doctrine, but in the same words to express those doctrines, because as Gill pointed out, when you introduce new words and new ways of expressing, you are 
really leaning to changing the doctrine. Why would you change the words if they're right? If they were right in 1689, they were right in 1789, they were right in 1889, they were right in 1989, why would you change them? <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, but I just really believe with strong conviction that we need to maintain our confessional standards and speak the same thing. Yes? Yeah. Absolutely. Very good. Very good discussion. And that's what I want these classes to be. I want them to be learning. I want them to be discussion. I'm not just wanting to stand up here and read to you. All right? Very good.